Uh, my favorite sport is baseball. Most of you know that. If I could watch baseball every day of the year, I would. Uh, I wish it was a year-round sport. I'm so beyond thrilled that spring training is uh, soon to be upon us. But during the off-season, when there is no MLB, uh, I follow another bat-on-ball sport, uh, cricket. And I'm strange in that. I mean, cricket is, is definitely a niche sport in America. Uh, it's most popular in the United States uh, with people of Indian or, or Pakistani or, or Bangladeshi descent. And so I subscribe to a, a, a cricket channel. And, you know, if you have family back in India, you need an easy way to uh, transfer the money. Ah, here we are. There's a cricket fever is on. Yeah, you need an easy way to transfer money back to, say, you know, your grandmother in Mumbai. And so the cricket channel has all kinds of advertisements for wire transfers. I mean, with an electronic wire transfer, you can send thousands of dollars, you know, in in seconds. I mean, money, you know, goes from one one side of the world to to the other, and and like I said, your grandma in Mumbai has access to it seconds later. Same is true Western Union if you have family in Latin American countries. But I want you to imagine for just a moment how difficult it would be to transfer money if there, you know, was no internet, were no computers. We're no fax machines. What would you do if you had to transfer, you know, thousands of dollars and you didn't have access to electronic wire transfer? Um, Well, I suppose you could snail mail the money, right? But in the case of thousands of dollars, that kind of feels a little little risky. What if there was no post office? Then what would you do? Or what if there were no, there was no paper, paper money? (laughs) Then what would you do? Probably the best you could come up with is to convert your money into high-value coins and then carry those coins on your person you know, wherever it is that they, they need to go on that, that long and dangerous journey. Uh, we come to the end of our time in 1 Corinthians, and that's exactly the situation that the Apostle Paul is facing. He wants to collect a large amount of money from the churches that he started in the western part of the Roman Empire— Churches that were comprised primarily of non-Jewish people, of people of all kinds of ethnic uh, backgrounds, you know, and, and he wants to carry that money, thousands and thousands of dollars, equivalent uh, today's dollars, money over, you know, thousands of miles back to the city of Jerusalem, back to help the original founding and struggling church there. And so that's where we're at, 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, you may wonder, like, how does a passage like this help me with my life? <laughs> how does it how does it help me, you know, have a better marriage or do better in my job or or parent better? And the answer is it, it doesn't. And that's for that reason, you know, this is a passage that never gets preached in church. Like, if you get online and look for all the sermons on First Corinthians sixteen, you won't find many. But the reason I wanted to touch on it is I think the passage has the ability to do several things for us. Number one, to stir up in our hearts, you know, more generosity. And who of us, who of us couldn't use more of that? Number two, uh, the passage and the story, the history surrounding it has a way of humbling us when, when, you know, when the plans that we make, the, the, all the kinds of plans and dreams that we make on behalf of God, don't come to fruition the way we expect. And then finally, 
you know, and this matters for our church, is it shows the great lengths that Paul was willing to go to and Jesus was willing to go to uh, to make reconciliation, racial reconciliation, uh, a reality in his day. So for all of that, we begin in verse 1 through 11. Now, uh, about the collection for the saints, do the same as I instructed the Galatian churches. On the first day of the week, each of you is to set aside uh, something and save in keeping with how he is prospering so that no collections will need to be made when I come. When I arrive, I will send with letters those you recommend to carry your gift to uh, Jerusalem. If it is suitable for me to go as well, they will travel with me. I will come to you after I pass through Macedonia, northern Greece, for I will be traveling through Macedonia, and perhaps I will remain with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I go. I don't want to see you now just in passing, since I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord allows. Uh, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, because a wide door for effective ministry is open for me. Yet, yet many oppose me. Uh, if Timothy comes, see that he has nothing to fear while with you, because he is doing the Lord's work, just as I am. So let no one look down on him. Send him on his way in peace, so that he can come to me, because I am expecting him with the brothers. And then skip ahead to 13 and 14. Uh, be alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. Uh, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla send you greetings warmly in the Lord, along with the church that meets in their home. All the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. This greeting is in my own hand. Paul, and so he's writing it. He, the rest of the letter is dictated, but he, he's writing it in the hand. Uh, and he goes, If anyone does not love the Lord, a curse be on him. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Uh, my love be with all of you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray again. <clears throat> Lord, we pray the prayer of St. Ignatius as follows. Teach us to be generous. Teach us to serve as you deserve. To give and not count the cost. To fight and not be dismayed by the wounds. To labor and not grow complacent. To give of our very self and not ask for reward, except the reward of knowing you and knowing that we are doing your will. Amen. Um, the sermon, it's kind of heavy on history, and I know those don't always make for the best sermons, but by the end of it, I will try and tie it together and bring it to bear on our lives. Let me start out with Paul's project. Uh, Paul's project, okay, it's clear that he's not raising money for himself. In fact, he's never raised money for himself. I mean, unlike some of the prosperity preachers that are out there who are like, you know, you need to tithe and, and send in money so that I can buy myself a, a, a Gulfstream jet. Like, that was definitely not Paul. He didn't raise money at all for himself. He explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, earlier in the letter, that his principle was basically to work hard with his own hands so that he, uh, he, he you know, wouldn't have to receive money from the church. He, he did that because he didn't want any church to be able to claim that they had bought him. In the case of Corinth, you know, the wealthy people in the Corinthian church wanted to become his patron and, and put him, kind of put him on their payroll, so to speak. And he's like, no, um, I'm, I'm not going to do that. 
Even though you really want me to, even though it will enhance your status to have an apostle on, on your payroll, he refused to accept money for himself. And they found that very offensive. So you could just imagine the interpersonal dynamics going on here as he's now trying to raise money for you know, someone else. In this case, for the beleaguered churches in, um, back in Jerusalem. Why were they in such a bad situation? Yeah, what led them to their, their, their mess? And the reason that I asked this question, it's probably not a question that you're asking, and, and I wouldn't have even asked it until somebody showed me something. So, you know, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 2, you have this wonderful moment where the early Christians, they, um, they're on fire. They're so excited about this new Christian faith. And it says that the, all the believers were together, and they held and they held all things in common, and they sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. That was, that's what they did back in Jerusalem. They sold their farms and their fields, and they pulled all their resources into common possession, which was a beautiful idea. It was a great idea until a, a famine you know, sweeps, sweeps through the land, through the region, and then, because they had sold everything off, they didn't have any personal equity. There was no home that they could, you know, fall back on. And so all of them were left destitute. And so you, you read in Acts, this, and sometimes people are like, oh, that's what we should do today. We should just, like, sell all of our, our stuff and, and pool it all together. And actually, the, the liquidation of all of their personal property and resources into, you know, a communal pot, yes, it was an enthusiastic response to the Spirit's work among them. And no, it was, it was not wise. It was dumb. <laughs> and that's the thing, is, like, God can be doing a, a legitimate, beautiful, wonderful work among among people, and yet we can, in our enthusiasm, I mean, sometimes make a, 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 have a very bad response, unwise response to it. And that's what ended up happening in this case. Uh, I think it's also important to simply note that, uh, uh, that, you know, Paul planted tons and tons of churches. He never instructed anyone in the churches that he planted to follow that same pattern, you know, to sell their personal property. It was always assumed that when you became a Christian, you would still own your house. You would still own your business. And you would use those resources to help those who were, you know, less advantaged than you, uh, you are. Okay, so Paul, um, before he ever set out on his first missionary journey, he had promised the leaders of the church in Jerusalem that he would remember the poor. And here we have it in Galatians 2.10. They asked only that we remember the poor, which I would make every effort to do. And so Everything that is happening in 1 Corinthians 16 is his determined response to fulfill, to keep that promise. Um, and, and not just to keep the promise. He didn't simply want to raise money and help them. He, he, he wants this collection, he, he needs this collection to be a sign of something bigger and better. He wants the collection to basically bridge the seismic ethnic divide that existed in the church at that time between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish people of various skin colors, various cultural heritage, etc. Uh, like, how do you bridge the great ethnic divide? That was the answer. That was the question he was trying to answer in his day. You know, he wants to basically walk into the city of Jerusalem with half a million dollars and be like, 
splashing cash. <laughs> It'd be like, you see this? You see? And he's just like giving cash out left and right. Look how much the non-Jewish Christians out on the other side of the world, look how much they love you. Look how much they have done for you. Um, we're all part of the same family. We all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Um, look, look how deep their affection is for you. You know, and the, the big hang-ups were uh, among the Jewish Christians that, well, these, these Gentiles, as they were called, these Gentile Christians, you know, they, they don't keep kosher. They're kind of dirty because they don't keep kosher and they don't keep the Sabbath. And, and, you know, and Paul's like, and oh yeah, and they haven't been circumcised. And Paul is like, none of that really matters. What, what matters is love. And they have the same love for Jesus the Messiah as you do. And the Holy Spirit has done such a work of grace in their hearts that they, they've made huge sacrifices to love and care for you. And so for Paul, the, the way to bridge the great ethnic divide is, not surprisingly, like deeply self-sacrificial love, where you have even really poor Christians in Macedonia and northern Greece are giving out of their poverty so that the other poor Christians in Jerusalem um, will be taken care of. Um, he knows that, that the whole project is fraught with danger, um, you know, at any stage of the project, it, it could all basically get screwed up. Um, there will be people in Jerusalem who hate him, who consider him a traitor to the Jewish nation. And he knows that there will be Christians in Jerusalem who will basically uh, be like, we don't want your tainted money. You know, that came from dirty Gentile hands. We no, no idea what they, they've been doing with their lives. We're not going to receive non-kosher money. And so at every stage of the project, something can go wrong, and, and in fact, it, it does. What is it? The, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Um, here was the plan. The plan was, on the first day of the week, so basically on Sunday when they were celebrating Jesus' resurrection, the, the churches, everybody in the church was to set aside money um, when they met for worship. And that everybody was supposed to do this, not just the wealthy, but, but everyone. Um, Paul would then travel through northern Greece in the area, as I said, Macedonia, with the cities of Philippi and Thessalonica, get money from them, then head south into the area of Corinth. And when he arrived, he wanted the project to be completed. He didn't want to show up and have to start the fundraising effort from scratch. He didn't want to show up and say, uh, why haven't you guys done this? And so he is sending the message ahead of time, like, do this. Start setting aside the money. Um, uh, all that money had to be converted to high-value coins, as I said. you know. And he and his traveling companions would have to hide all of those coins. I mean, imagine how weird, how, I don't know, like, cloak and dagger that must be if you had... I don't know, uh, $500,000 worth of coins that you have to put all over your body, maybe in your luggage, carry that over land and, you know, take it with you on the boat. I mean, it, it's just, it's so ripe for robbers to, to steal from you, right? To tra travel across land and see thousands of miles and just pray that we don't get robbed in the process. And make sure that you commission somebody from your church to go with me 
and, and carry the money. The reason that was so important is it protected him from charges of financial mismanagement, a fraud. They could be, they could say, yep, this is the amount of money that was collected. It's all above board, you know, accounting. But secondarily, it gave that personal touch where it would be one of those dirty Gentile Christians who is coming face to face and, and delivering the gift to the people uh, in Jerusalem. That's the plan. The problem is before, before Paul can even arrive in Corinth, uh, he ends up getting in a terrible fight with the church. And they end up sending really nasty letters and messages back, you know, back and forth between each other. And then, you know, he, he always, he never quite knows what's going to happen with his travel itinerary. And he thought he would be there at a certain amount of time. He didn't show up. And, and so they're upset. Like his travel plans are always delayed, which they interpret to be him, you know, being wishy-washy. And they say things to him in their letter like, hey, you talk to us really strong through, through your writings, but you don't really say much uh, to us face to face. Are you really that big of a man? And, you know, and so at that point, Paul could have just said, forget it. <laughs> um, I, I throw my hands up, forget the project. I, w- I at least won't try and raise money in Corinth. But he was so determined that, um, that it must be done. And so we get in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, his second plea for the money. Um, he says, I want you to know that the churches in Macedonia who are really poor, they have given out of their poverty, and God's grace has been so at work in them. I mean, they've given their money with almost a reckless abandon. I have almost had to stand up in front of them and say, stop giving anymore, because they were giving with, with that kind of... Um, that kind of extravagant generosity. And like, like Ivan just read, in essence, they were imitating Jesus. I mean, that's what it is. Second Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And he also quotes from Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9. You may have heard this one before. How God loves a cheerful giver. And that was his message. Like, imitate Jesus and remember that God loves it when you give out of the, you know, overflowing abundance of your heart. Like, I want you to give voluntarily. I don't want you to give out of compulsion. I don't want you to feel like I'm twisting the money out of your hands. I mean, always remember, and this is a good thing for us to always remember, God doesn't need our money, does he? (laughs) I mean, he's got the cattle on a thousand hillsides. If the universe is as big as we think that it is, uh, he's got enough power to make money uh, out of nothing, right? But, you know, he, he has helpers everywhere. But, you know, he likes to fund his work in this world uh, through, through his followers of Jesus. You know, he spreads the gospel through this world and expands Christianity across the world through the cheerful donations of his happy children. Uh, that's, that's a very long history lesson, <laughs> and I could have told you more, but I will cut it off here and move into um, kind of the last section with it. Eventually, the Corinthians do give. Eventually, he arrives. Eventually, they provide money for the, the collection. Eventually, he and his travel companions, they get in a boat. They sail across 
over to Turkey. Then they go by land. Then they get back in another boat, and they sail into Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, they, they carry the money all the way there. And what's, what's amazing, what's absolutely amazing, and we read this in the book of, um, of, of Acts, Paul's project was like his crowning ministry achievement. I mean, it was, it was like the most important thing he could think of. And he writes about it in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in the book of Romans. Like, it's that important to him. And then when he gets there in, uh, to Jerusalem in the book of Acts, he meets with the Jerusalem church, the leaders, face to face. And presumably he takes the money to them. Guess how much the book of Acts tells us about what happens next? Like, what happens with the money? It doesn't tell us a thing. And so the way that God, the way that God orchestrated this history is you had, a, you had the most foremost Christian in the world use every bit of his resources, every bit of his planning, every bit of his, his powers of um, persuasion, every bit of his, his knowledge and energy to try and fulfill this, this, this part of this plan, right? And he, all of this story is building to this moment, and then the way that God writes the story is, you know, the whole thing vanishes. He, he gets, he gets um, beaten. He, he gets arrested. He gets falsely accused. He, he, he's put, put on trial all these times. He's arrested. He's kept in prison for two years. He, he gets on a boat and sails to the city of Rome, and he's shipwrecked. <laughs> and he, he's left for dead on an island, and then he gets on another boat in and basically, the whole thing just goes up, goes up in smoke. What are the, some of the takeaways then for us? Number one, successful plans. Really, you know, some of us are achiever types, and we are. That means we're driven by success. Like we are driven. Like if you really find out what makes us tick, we are driven by professional, artistic, athletic, academic, um, family success, like having healthy, well-adjusted children. And the thing that if, if you're an achiever type and you're driven by success, the number one thing you're most afraid of in this life is failure, right? We're driven by the fear, fear of failure. We can't, uh, we can't bear it. And we're also, one of our besetting sins is we're, we, we, we're usually caught up in comparison games. You know, we're, we're wanting to measure up well with our peers, whoever our peers are. Uh, and maybe on the positive side, maybe we're dreamers and planners, and we, we want to do something great for God. We want to do something significant for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and that is good, like Paul. But I go back to uh, what Brennan Manning, the author of the book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, wrote uh, years and years ago. He, 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 felt, you know, he, he felt like he was listening to Jesus, and Jesus was talking to him. And this is what Jesus said. Brennan Somewhere you got the idea that I expected your life to be an untarnished success story. Nope. I expect more failure from you than you expect from yourself. And when I hear that as a, a, a pseudo-achiever type, I really like that. <laughs> you know, that it, it just takes some of the relentless pressure off, off of me to think that actually Jesus might, might want me to fail more than, than I would ever allow myself to. And he's certainly not obligated to make my plans go the way that I think they should go. Um, 
You know, we trust that if we planned or desired something, even with godly ambitions, and he comes along and he says, no, Brad, no church, no reconciled, um, that's always going to be coming, you know, from the one who's the, the wisest and who loves me and us the best. The other thing I'm reminded of is just the message of the gospel is we have somebody who has already lived the, the most successful life <laughs> that could ever be lived and has lived it on our behalf. The, the gospel invites us to rest in the record that Jesus has provided for us through his life's achievements. Um, you think about it, he's already accomplished the greatest thing for God. <laughs> and he promises you know, that we will win the ultimate prize because he has won the, the ultimate prize on our behalf. And that's just, that's great, gracious news for us to be reminded of. Number two, uh, a couple of takeaways then for us as a, as a church. And, and I, I don't want you to interpret this sermon as a let's give more money to reconciled church. That's not, it's not a fundraising sermon. Um, that might not be a bad idea, but <laughs> um, number two, I just wonder what generosity God might call us to, either individually or as a church. You say, oh yeah, churches are always asking for money, always talking about, always talking about money. Well, um, did you realize that Christian philanthropy ac- accounted for 70% of all American philanthropy in the year 20, uh, 2022? It totaled $300 billion, and that it, actually Christians outgave the United States government in addressing global poverty? Um, like, whatever folks may say or think about the church, what we have to increasingly try and show is that the church is a seismic add-on for the good of the world. Like I, the church has a lot, of, a lot of bad PR, and it's very deserved, but that doesn't tell the full nuanced story, because there's also some really incredibly wonderful things that the church does. And in the case of, like, addressing global poverty, the church is doing it more than anybody else. You know, back in Boise, I was friends with a, a, one of my pastor friends there. Their church, it wasn't a big church. I would say it was probably 400 people. But they ended up raising, in a 400-person church, $30,000 to build a school in, rural, in a rural area of Ethiopia. And then later, a church plant, a new church startup, kind of grew out of the, that school efforts. And so my, my pastor friend, uh, he had an opportunity he and a few other folks at his church to travel into Addis Ababa and then to you know, take the, the wild journey out of Addis Ababa through back roads to drive out into the rural area to see the church. And he said, when we were there, uh, there were 200 people, Ethiopian Christians, gathered uh, for Sunday morning. And he said, I, I preached that sermon in English. It got translated into, I don't even know what the Ethiopian dialect is. Is it uh, and um, I mean, maybe it's, maybe they speak Arabic. And he said the energy in that church service was electric. You know, you know that just loud voices and dancing and clapping and you know African Christianity is really cool that way. Uh, and he said I've never felt the, the the restraints of my Northern European cultural heritage, the the shackles of my cultural heritage, quite like I did the day that I was in that church. And he also, then he said, you know, there's an abundance of Islamic oil money that is going out, you know, from places like Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And it's being spent around, around the world on Muslim mosques in these underdeveloped countries. 
So what they would, would do is they would go into a poor, undeveloped village like the one they were in, and they would, they would literally build the most beautiful building within 300 miles. You know, spend you know, $50,000 in American uh, equivalents um, to build, or not $50,000, $500,000 to build like the most beautiful mosque. And, you know, a $30,000 a school building by comparison, that, that isn't very much. And so I said, well, how can the Christians compete? You know, if you're in a $30,000 school building, they're in a, a half a million dollar mosque. How do they compete? And he said, well, the, the Muslims will only teach Arabic in their schools and they will only read, read the Quran. That's the only literature that they'll read. And the schools are usually all male. And even an Ethiopian peasant farmer who makes $5 a year, knows that if his kids are going to get anywhere in this world, they need to read and write in both Ethiopian dialects, and they need to know English. And their daughters need to be able to go to school too. And they need to be able to do basic algebra. And so you said the Christian school there does all of that for the poor. You know, Wahhabist Islam does not. Well, I thought, I just it's a really good illustration of a church that was kind of had their eyes open thinking how can we be a blessing out there and the role of the church is to do that right it's to the role of the church is to bring the life of Jesus Messiah into places where that life is missing and you know we at reconciled we don't have a ton of resources but but we can open our eyes and our hearts wide open and And just see what it is that the Lord might want to do with us. Because whatever we have, even if it isn't much, we ought to use that as the the Lord calls us to. Number three, and finally, I just wonder what racial reconciliation efforts the Lord might call us to. I I don't have a a project. (laughs) Uh, I I don't have anything to set before you. I I look at Paul's life, and, and that was so important to him. It was so important that, that you know, I think you'd be so disp- disappointed that we have black church on Sunday, white church on Sunday, Latino church on Sunday, never the, never the twain shall meet. And um, I know that we're, we're starting a Be the Bridge class that Joe and Craig will be leading starting next week, and maybe some good ideas uh, on racial reconciliation will, will come out of that. You know, most human humans' natural instinct is to love what is familiar, you know, more than what is foreign. We tend to love naturally the things that are familiar. We tend to prefer those who are most similar to us, love those most like us. And at the very least, we can be a church that says, I'm not going to live only by my natural instinct. You know, that I'm going to have a, a curious hunger to know each and every person and to learn about them, to learn their cultural story, to learn their cultural heritage, to see the beauty uh, of their background, to see the Imago Dei in their culture. Uh, the, I think that kind of attitude is increasingly rare in America as we become more polarized and more xenophobic. And we're like, uh, they're the bad guys and, and we're the good guys. And we just need to be a place that pushes back on those natural inclinations and allows our spiritual inclinations to to take hold. And if we do that, God will show us, I think, you know, how to, what what to do next. At least I hope so. And then we should always remember these words of MLK. 
that we need that we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. He who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. You know, there is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. And when we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. And we need, we need an America that, that is less prone to hate its enemies, for sure. And I think as a church, I'll conclude right here. As a church, if we can establish generosity as a hallmark of discipleship, you know, if that is something that generous spirit, we, we, we say as a group, we want to cultivate that. And if we can establish a curious interest and love for those who are different uh, from us, if those values get prioritized along with the power of forgiveness, that is the spirit behind 1 Corinthians 16. Now, there's no guarantees that God is going to bless and, and make it all work out the way we want to. Um, but there is this guarantee that he who was rich for our sakes became poor, that he became poor so that we would become rich. Um, we are in the best of hands. You know, the ultimate reason, the ultimate reason why we can be, you know, generous givers is because he has given us everything. Amen.